0: Hey, I'm Kelly McEvers, and this is Embedded from NPR. And we're back today for an end of summer update. What we're doing is looking back at a couple of recent episodes we've done and telling you what has happened with those stories since. To start, there's this hashtag that's been going around. You might have seen it MoscowMitch.
1: The headline of a Washington Post op ed labeled Mitch McConnell a Russian asset.
0: Senator Mitch McConnell, recently disparaged as Moscow Mitch.
1: Moscow Mitch.
0: Moscow Mitch. Moscow Mitch. It's all about the subject of our latest episode, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. But the meaning behind the hashtag is kind of complicated. So we thought we would look into it
2: this is another one of those ridiculously unfair ways to summarize a complex individual in just two words, but it happens that it resonates with recent and memorable history.
0: Turns out it has a lot to do with an aluminum plant, a dinner one night in Switzerland, and a critical vote in the U.S. Senate. A story that seems to have gotten under Mitch McConnell's skin.
3: I'm proud of my record. I'm proud that it's right there in black and white, and liars cannot gaslight it away.
0: That and an update on another story we've been following after this break.
4: Support for this podcast and the following message come from our sponsor, Capital One. Here's Ken Dodolin, VP of Conversational AI Products, on why they needed a diverse team to program Eno, the intelligent assistant, to understand human language.
1: At Capital One, we have a very diverse set of customers. We want customers to be able to express themselves in any way that they want. And so as we thought about how to train Eno to understand customers, we knew we needed a team that had similarly diverse backgrounds and perspectives that they could bring to the
4: process every day. To meet Eno, the Capital One assistant, go to CapitalOne.com Eno.
0: Okay, we're back. And yeah, here we are talking about one of those two-word nicknames that gets stuck to a politician. This one, Moscow Mitch, does have a story behind it. Actually, several stories. The most recent one starts with an
2: aluminum plant. Greetings, this is Tom Amperger.
0: Hi, Tom. How are you? Hi, Kelly. Tom Hamburger is an investigative reporter at The Washington Post who has covered this story. And he says the idea for the aluminum plant came from a company called Brady
2: Industries. In March 2017, the CEO of this new company, a guy by the name of Craig Bouchard, is convinced that Kentucky would be a good home to build his dream, which is the first aluminum rolling mill in the United States in 40 years.
0: So Bouchard meets with the governor of Kentucky, Matt Bevin.
2: They had quite a good discussion that night. Bevin eventually got the state legislature to agree in the final hours of the 2017 session to do something extraordinary for a Republican governor, or for any governor really, but to make a $15 million equity investment in the Brady Project. That is, the state had skin in the game. And Bouchard was very impressed with that.
0: The site they chose was the town of Ashland, Kentucky. It's in Appalachia, which has been hit by the downturn of the coal industry. The new plant would employ up to 600 people.
2: And it is touted now by both company officials and state officials as one of the most remarkable economic developments in Kentucky history.
0: What we're hearing here, the sounds around us, this is what hope sounds like. What we smell, the smells in the air of earth and, and of just new-turned dirt and all of this. This is what hope smells like. Brady Industries uploaded this video of Governor Matt Bevin to YouTube. That's why there's music. And around the same time, Mitch McConnell talked about the project on the Senate floor.
3: In my home state of Kentucky, it's estimated that more than 1,000 construction jobs will be needed to help build a new aluminum rolling mill for Brady Industries.
1: Brady Industries recently broke ground on a new billion-dollar aluminum mill that will create up to 1,500 jobs right next to Ashland, Kentucky. You know where we're talking about, right?
0: The plan had some potential problems. See, this kind of plant takes raw aluminum, rolls it, and then sells it to other companies to make things like cars. But it turns out there's just not a lot of raw aluminum ore in the world. Not enough of these things called smelters that produce raw aluminum ore. So at one point, Tom Hamburger reported, the CEO of Brady Industries, Craig Bouchard, got in touch with executives from a massive Russian aluminum company that used to be run by the state, a company called Rusal. And Roussal was building a new energy-efficient smelter in Siberia. So for Bouchard, working with Roussal could give him access to raw aluminum and to some capital for his plant. Tom Hamburger wrote that Bouchard, quote, became convinced that a partnership with Roussal would be a dream deal, end quote. So in January 2019... Bouchard flies to Zurich, Switzerland, and has dinner with a Roussal executive.
2: One side of the table is Bouchard, and on the other is this director of sales for Roussal at the time.
0: But here's the potential problem with that dinner. Roussall at the time was under sanctions. And to understand why, you have to go back to almost a year before the dinner the day that a former Russian spy was found twitching on a bench in England next to his unconscious daughter.
2: Bad things have been known to happen to Russians who cross Vladimir Putin. Now a former spy
1: accused of being a traitor to Russia is fighting for his life in Britain, possibly after
0: being poisoned. Sergei Skripal was found unconscious on a bench in Salisbury in southern
3: England on Sunday along with his
0: 33-year-old daughter. The British government accused two Russian agents of poisoning them.
3: The government has concluded that it is highly likely that Russia was responsible for the act against Sergei and Yulia Skripal.
0: Russia denied any involvement. Several countries decided to retaliate.
2: The U.S. joined with Western allies in imposing sanctions on several Russian entities.
0: Sanctions imposed by the U.S. government to Vladimir
1: Putin's closest circle and their companies are hitting some of the country's private businesses.
2: Including this Russian company called Rusal and its founding and controlling partner Oleg Deripaska, an oligarch in Russia considered very close to Vladimir Putin.
0: So in spring 2018, the United States froze Oleg Deripaska's assets and basically made it illegal to do business with his companies. But then eight months later, in December 2018, the U.S. Treasury Department announced it wanted to lift the sanctions on Rusal. Treasury said Deripaska would restructure his arrangement with Roussall so he owned less than 50 percent and that he personally would remain under sanction. Trump administration officials said keeping Roussall under sanctions was affecting the worldwide aluminum market. But a lot of people in Congress were opposed to lifting the sanctions.  — A resolution to block the move by Treasury was
2: introduced. — The House of Representatives votes overwhelmingly, with astonishing Republican support, to reject lifting of sanctions. — Deripaska is a criminal, he's closely aligned with Putin, and we know that he would benefit from this delisting. — Nothing has changed in the Kremlin's behavior to warrant
3: the relaxation of these sanctions. — Provocations by Vladimir Putin, And his cronies require a decisive and forceful response by the United States.
2: The vote in the House was 362 to 53.
0: This is a big
3: vote.
2: It's a big vote, and you had clear bipartisan support for keeping the sanctions in place.
0: Clear bipartisan support, but at that time, it was a largely symbolic vote. Because just the day before, the resolution to keep the sanctions in place had already been voted on in the Senate. And that vote was the same day as the dinner in Zurich, Switzerland, when Bouchard was sitting across the table from a Roussel exec.
2: The Senate was just literally opening its debate about whether to permit the Trump administration to lift sanctions on Russia's largest aluminum producer. And the two guys sitting across the table at this upscale restaurant in Zurich, Switzerland, both had millions of dollars riding on the outcome of that debate and the vote that would occur within the next 24 hours.
0: Did you ask Bouchard, sort of point blank, did you discuss sanctions at that dinner?
2: We did. We asked him if they discussed the Senate debate over sanctions, and he said that was not discussed. He did tell us that both he and the Roussel executive have, as we would expect, very good lawyers, and they were advised that They could legally meet one another, get to know one another, but the law, the sanctions law still in place would prevent them from having any substantive negotiations about any uh, future joint venture. And so as he described it, it was an amicable introductory chat and they did discuss sanctions in the sense that saying to one another, if someday sanctions were lifted, maybe we can get together. And if in fact his description is accurate, it is a legal and appropriate discussion under the law.
0: But still, Tom Hamburger says, the timing just did not look good.
2: Mike McFall, who is the former ambassador to Russia and a Russia scholar and now teaches at Stanford University, he described it as shocking how blatantly transactional this looks and called for further explanation. Democrats have also raised questions about this timing and about whether there was any kind of advanced knowledge that members of the Congress or the Senate had before the vote took place. Those questions have been answered uniformly by Mitch McConnell and by Kentucky's junior senator uh, in the negative. They had no knowledge beforehand that the Russian firm was interested in this plan. Uh, nonetheless, the coincidence that we described um, was as Ambassador McFaul said, shocking in how blatantly transactional it looks.
0: So if McConnell didn't know about it before the sanctions vote, why are people criticizing him? Tom Hamburg says it's basically two things. One, the day of the Senate vote, McConnell invited Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin to a lunch with Republican senators to convince them to vote against the bill. Remember, the Trump administration was going to lift the sanctions on Rousseau, but keep sanctions on Oleg
3: Deripaska. Here's Mnuchin talking to reporters. Uh, we are trying to de-link these companies so that they will not be under the influence and control of a, a sanctioned oligarch. That's, that, that's our objective.
2: Many Republicans were skeptical, and when Steve Mnuchin left that lunch, again with Mitch McConnell at his side, he came out and told reporters he didn't know how the vote would go.
0: And when it did come up for a vote, it was McConnell who led the debate on the Senate floor.
3: In this narrow case, career civil servants at the Treasury Department simply applied and implemented the law Congress itself wrote.
0: And in the end...
3: The clerk will call the roll.
0: Mr. Alexander, Ms. Baldwin, Mr. Barras. It
2: came down to the wire. It came down to just three votes. The yeas are 57, and the nays are 42.
0: The measure failed.
1: The motion is not agreed to.
0: Not long after, Rusal announced a major investment in the Kentucky project.
2: The boards of Brady Industries and Rusal have officially approved the Russian aluminum giant's $200 million
5: joint venture investment.
2: There was an announcement of an extraordinary investment in this new plant in Ashland, Kentucky, $200 million from Rusal and taking a 40% stake in the new aluminum rolling mill. The deal was made possible after sanctions were lifted on Rusal in January.
0: Mitch McConnell says he voted the way he did because of Treasury's recommendation and that it had nothing to do with this proposed plant in his home state. And again, that he did not know about the Roussel investment ahead of the sanctions vote. But, and here's the second thing Tom said is notable. A few days before the vote, another reporter for The Washington Post spotted a man named David Vitter in McConnell's office. Vitter was a senator from Louisiana He's now a lobbyist, and he and his firm work for Roussal's parent company. And around the time of the vote, they were pushing for the sanctions to be lifted. When I asked McConnell about the meeting with Vitter, he only said, quote, We do not read out staff meetings. Vitter and his firm, Mercury Public Affairs, declined to comment. Tom Hamburger of the Washington Post says, the bigger concern with this aluminum plant is that it could open the door to Russian influence.
2: It's one of the things that's disconcerting to McFall and other Russian watchers about this. It's not so much that they think illegal things might have occurred. It's that in some ways that everything that occurred was in fact legal, but suggests a very sophisticated way for... Russian individuals connected to the Kremlin to enter the political and economic bloodstream of the United States. Because of that concern, the sanctions vote itself, falling just three votes short of keeping sanctions in place, in other words, the benefit to Putin was decided by just three senators. What it permitted was an introduction of Russian capital, and in a sense, personnel, into the heartland into a state that's politically influential, in part because it's the home state of the majority leader, and also because it gives the part owners of a new aluminum plant a chance to study and get to know the U.S. electricity grid, and if the company should someday provide high-grade aluminum to defense contractors, it could provide some access to defense information.
0: So that is one story behind the Moscow Mitch hashtag. There are a couple of others. The first one is that just before the 2016 elections, intelligence agencies said Russia was trying to interfere in the elections in favor of Donald Trump. But according to people who were there at the time, Mitch McConnell was skeptical of the intelligence and said any public statement against Russia would be partisan politics. McConnell did sign a bipartisan letter warning state election officials about potential attacks, but his critics say this wasn't enough. So, Moscow Mitch. The second one is the fact that Mitch McConnell has recently not allowed votes in the Senate on two election security bills even though the FBI and intelligence agencies have warned there's a risk of foreign intervention in the 2020 election. McConnell's people sent us a statement he wrote saying Russia did try to interfere in U.S. elections and Congress does take election security seriously. But he says election security should be handled by states, not by the federal government. Again, critics say he wasn't taking a strong enough stance against Russia. And actually, this is when the nickname was born. It was Joe Scarborough, a morning anchor on MSNBC.
4: How can Moscow Mitch keep denying that Vladimir Putin continues to try to subvert American democracy?
0: Kentucky journalist Al Cross, who has covered McConnell for decades, says McConnell usually isn't rattled by this kind of criticism. But this one seems to have gotten to him.
1: It's pretty unusual for Addison Mitchell McConnell to stand on the Senate floor and give a 3,500-word speech as he did.
0: Right after the Scarborough comment and a Washington Post column that called McConnell
3: a Russian asset. Let me make this crystal clear for the hyperventilating hacks who haven't actually followed this issue. Every single member of the Senate agrees that Russian meddling was real and is real. Claims that anybody here denies what Russia did on President Obama's watch are just lies. Not partisan distortion, not clever spin, just total fabrications.
1: Sort of brought to mind his old saying that uh, when hit with a pebble, respond with a boulder.
3: I've used my Senate seat to stand up to Russia and protect the United States of America. I'm proud of my record. I'm proud that it's right there in black and white and liars cannot gaslight it away.
0: But Alcross says there are political concerns, too. As we told you in our previous episodes, McConnell is up for re-election in 2020, in a state where the president is still very popular.
1: Now, he makes a fairly strong case that the Russians are on notice and there's plenty of money out there to uh, keep them from uh, messing around and uh, so on. But uh, I think that uh, he's reluctant to move these bills because... Uh, Anything that has the aroma of Russia can put space between him and Donald Trump. Donald Trump doesn't want uh, anything that even gives a hint that his election was not legitimate.
0: After the break, one more story we are following. It's also in Kentucky. And this one is playing out on some train tracks.
4: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Zoom. When you can't be there in person, Zoom. Zoom is used by millions to connect face-to-face, across town, or around the world. Share files, video, anything, and connect through any device, desktop, laptop, tablet, smartphone, or conference room system. Zoom video conferencing, Zoom rooms, Zoom video webinars, and Zoom phone lets you do business at the speed of Zoom. Visit Zoom online to set up your free account today. Meet happy with Zoom.
0: Okay, we are back. And one of the stories we have reported on is the coal mining industry in Appalachia. These counties we spent a bunch of time in, in Virginia, West Virginia and Kentucky, where coal used to be king. These are the best people in the world right here. I'm totally convinced about
1: that. The people have never left the year 1980. Everybody's still living like nothing's changed
2: and I love it.
0: See, that's the problem with the coal miners here. You got paid a lot of money for doing a manual labor job, and now that that's gonna go away and you've overextended yourselves financially.
6: First of all, drag your ass into one of these coal mines that's 36 inches high and crawl around on your hands and knees for 10 hours a day, and then tell me
1: you don't deserve what you get. There's nothing here. It's slowly dying. How does that feel? That scares the shit out of you if you don't mind me saying that. I mean, you get a job, you keep it, because you know you got to.
6: If we don't have coal, we'll have to move. I mean, we won't be in this area. There's nothing left here, you know. Without coal, we we ain't got anything, really.
1: And for those miners, get ready, because you're gonna be working your asses off, all right? Thank you, everybody.
4: Thank you. Thank you.
0: That has not happened. The Trump administration has relaxed environmental regulations on the coal industry. But U.S. coal production has dropped to its lowest rate in 40 years. Coal plants are closing at a record rate, and the number of people employed in coal is at an all-time low. One coal company that operates a mine in Harlan County, Kentucky, recently went bankrupt and stopped paying its employees. So the employees decided to try to do something about it. Reporter Sydney Bowles with the Ohio Valley Resource has been covering this story for the past month. So we asked her to tell us about it.
5: So this coal company, Black Jewel, declares bankruptcy on July 1st. And Black Jewel's over 1,000 coal miners in Kentucky, Ohio, West Virginia, and Wyoming um, are told to stop coming into work. They're not officially laid off, but they're told just to stay home. So they had gotten their last paycheck on uh, June 28th. They didn't know anything was wrong, spent it on normal life expenses, rent, mortgage, car payments, only to find out a few days later that those checks bounced. Meanwhile, because of Black Jewel's payment cycle, they were supposed to get another paycheck uh, in the middle of July, but that didn't come through as well. Wow. Wow. So miners have essentially done about a month worth of work, which they haven't been paid for, and they're just kind of uh, left wondering what's going on, whether they still have jobs. So how much are we talking for someone, like a month's pay It seems like folks are between $2,000 and $4,000 in debt because of this. They're also on the hook for fines with their bank. And as time goes on, they're finding themselves unable to make car payments, unable to make chemotherapy payments for their children. It's just as time goes on, the consequences of this lack of payment get more and more severe. So on... July 29th, a woman who lives right near a Black Jewel coal loading facility sees a train being loaded up with coal. And she thinks to herself, wait a minute, Black Jewel is in bankruptcy. How are they moving coal? So she sends a text around to some of the people that she knows that worked there. And about five miners decide they're going to go see what's going on. So they go up to this loading facility and they see the train being loaded. And they decide they're going to block the train.
6: We want our money, and we want it now. If they can load a train now, they can give us our money.
5: They essentially say, you know, if Black Jewel can't afford to pay us our money, we're not going to let them move this coal out.
6: Whenever it comes to taking food out of my children's mouth, that's what pisses me off. That's what makes me mad at anything in this world. You can take anything you want to take from me. and you take something from my kids, it's the end for you.
5: So that was over a month ago now, and these miners have essentially been blockading this railroad, blocking about $1.4 million worth of coal for for over a month. And that coal hasn't moved? It hasn't moved.
0: So how has the protest kind of grown and changed, I guess, over the month?
5: It started out as about five Miners and a few of their wives. Over time, it's grown and shrunk. I think at the greatest, there were probably over a hundred people camped out in multiple tents, cooking food in an impromptu kitchen, playing cornhole on the tracks. There have been local musicians stop by to put on concerts for these folks. Games of you know touch football happening in in the street. It's gone from this this real big party atmosphere to, you know, some days just two or three people sitting in camping chairs on the railroad tracks. And no matter how many people are there, no matter how many kids were running around or, or what the energy was like, underneath it there's this real sense of anger that we, sh- we shouldn't have to be doing this. We don't want to be here. We just want to get the payments that were due.
0: What does Black Jewel say about all this? What is, what is their response to the protest?
5: They did say that they were um, doing everything that they can to pay all of the, the people that they owe money to, including all of the, the businesses that had invested in Black Jewel. They also encouraged miners to dig into their 401ks to cover immediate expenses. But I will say, you know, in terms of miners getting the payment that they're owed, they are pretty far down on the list of of people that Black Jewel owes money to. They're estimated to get uh, anywhere between one-fifth and one-eighth of what they're, what they're owed um, after this new company, Copper Glow, took over the mine. Miners still haven't seen that money. So essentially at this point, they're committed to continuing to occupy these train tracks until they see that money in their bank.
0: Given what's happened with Black Jewel, these specific miners, how do they feel about the future and whether or not the future is coal?
5: Oh, that is such a complicated question, and I think it's been weighing pretty heavily on on the minds of these miners and their families, you know. I've spoken many times with one miner who both he and his wife just started uh, nursing school. They both decided that um, you know, healthcare was, was a more reliable industry than mining. I talked to a number of miners, actually some of the original five who were blockading the railroad track back in July, who um, have given up on the industry in Kentucky. They're moving to work in unionized coal mines in Alabama. I've talked to some folks who are pretty pessimistic about the state of coal saying, you know, I have a mortgage, I have a car payment, I can't afford to do anything else, nothing, no other job here will pay me the income that I was getting. But these same miners are also worried that whatever company comes in next to run these mines may pay them, you know, two, or three dollars less an hour. And that in itself could leave them unable to pay bills that they could pay on their black jewel salaries.
0: Sydney met one coal miner named John Curtis Cress. He had recently been through bankruptcy and was getting himself out of that. And then he stopped getting his paycheck from Black Jewel.
6: Luckily, I was able to get unemployment, but my unemployment is uh, roughly roughly a thousand dollars a month. And I have, let's see, a twelve hundred dollar mortgage payment, eight hundred eighty dollar bankruptcy payment plus you know power bill you know all my other utilities so I've got you know three times more that needs to go out than what I have coming in coal mining has never been something I was I wanted to do um, it was part of my I guess heritage you know my my dad and papas and all that had always done it and I'm proud you know of that heritage but it's just something I didn't want and don't you know don't want from my kids. But Can you just talk about why the uncertainty. You never know from one day to the next if you're gonna have a job. They'll get you used to making a whole lot of money and then kinda of take it away. A lot of people say it's either uh it's either steak or blowny, You don't ever know from one day to the next. And it's not really a safe job and it's it's always just slowly killing your body. So by the time you, if you do make it to retirement age, you're not going to be able to enjoy nothing. It's just not really a good career. You know, I've just seen so many people, you know, that are so back broken and can't breathe and, and are down from it that it just, just didn't seem like something that I just wanted to be a part of, you know. It's a never ending up and down cycle.
5: desperation that this has caused, the lasting financial impact, I think that cannot be underestimated and its impact will last far beyond this bankruptcy. Sydney Bowles, thank you so much. Thank you.
0: This episode was produced by Tom Dreisbach and edited by Neal Carruth, Mark Mamet, Jeff Young, and Deirdre Walsh. Tom Hamburger, the reporter you heard at the beginning of the episode, co-reported his story in the Washington Post with Rosalind Helderman. Our theme song is by Colin Wamsgans, other original music by Blue Dot Sessions. Follow us on Twitter at NPR Embedded. Subscribe to this podcast if you don't already and leave us a review on iTunes. We will be back this fall with more episodes. Thanks for listening to Embedded from NPR.